0: We'll be continuing this morning our study in the Gospel of John, this, this prologue of John uh, that, that I had the privilege of beginning on Easter Sunday. I was blessed by Brother Carey's teaching from the Word of God last Lord's Day. We continue this morning. We'll be looking at John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. But, but before we go there, if I may, I wanted to, wanted to give a... Uh, a little bit of contextual thought, theological context, if you will. Our title this morning is Jesus and the Grace of God. We've already sung much and said much about grace this morning. Um, But my fear, and in some cases my observation, is that, that you and I are living in an age Even within the church, perhaps even though I pray not within this church, that we we think so much of our own worthiness, so little of the holiness of God, that the nature of grace may be in danger of being devalued deflated. So I wanted to open this morning by sharing a passage from the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 27, and some foundational truths from that passage before we turn back to the Gospel of John. John. The Gospel of John's prologue is talking about the the coming of Christ into the world. So this paragraph in Romans three is not unrelated as it begins, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. He's talking about the coming of Jesus. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no stink, no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that is a payment by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins until the cross, that is, we were the recipients of Christ's patience, of God's forbearance. At the cross, all who believe become recipients of his grace. Continuing now in the text. It was to show his righteousness in the present or at the present time. End of verse 26, one of the most theologically significant statements in the entire Old Testament, so that he might be just. And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. A few principles that come out of this. These are in your outline, if you, if you have the PDF or you have the digital version of the outline, these uh, are there, but first, God's justice is absolute and precise. There is no salvation by give them a break. Because absolute, precise justice does not give breaks. There is no salvation by, Ah, it's not that big a deal. Because God's justice is both absolute and precise. Therefore, there is an eternally large price to be paid for our sin which is grievous. The doctrine of the sinfulness or depravity of man does not assert that every person is as actually evil as they can possibly be. I bet there are a number of you here today that did not actually kill anybody yesterday. Not prepared to say that none of you did because sometimes the news moves a little slowly. but every single one of us is so affected and so infected by sin in both nature and conduct that we stand utterly unworthy before a holy God in both nature and conduct, completely outside of any claim whatsoever to right standing before God. Even when we slip up and do the right things in our sin, we most often do them for wrong reasons. Our motivations are scrambled, our hearts are wicked. Outside of Christ, before we come to Christ, we bear a grievous sin. Sin debt. And this in the face of a just God. Therefore, that sin price, which is eternally consequential, can be paid by us eternally. For most of humanity, that's precisely what happens. Condemnation, because we love the dark more than we love the light. and most of humanity, Jesus spoke of a narrow way and a broad way. We stumble down the broad way by default to eternal condemnation and hell. Because of our sin debt. or that eternal sin debt can be paid in time by one who carries eternity in his nature. Thus the living God is both utterly just and goes to the cross to be the justifier to maintain his justice and to achieve for us that payment for our sin, which can only take place apart from hell forever on the cross. Jesus, spoken of in John chapter one as the word, offers his salvation freely. Undeservedly to an unworthy people by grace to all who will surrender, declaring him Lord by faith and turning from their sin. It is the amazingness of grace that no one who has ever received it was worthy of it. His grace is for those who are unworthy and come, ironically, by grace to know their unworthiness. So into this world of unworthiness into a world that declared war on God in the Garden of Eden and has perpetuated that war ever since. And the word became flesh. John chapter one, verse 14. And dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness, remember last week, Carrie talked of John the witness is what the Gospel of John calls John the Baptist. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. But the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This passage uses the word grace four times in just a short paragraph. Thus, this is talking about Jesus and the grace of God. Roman numeral one, the miracles of grace. The miracles of grace. In the very first verse of this paragraph, verse 14, three things. First, the Word became flesh. Oh, the, uh, oh, the heresies in the early days of Christianity that, that remain heresies today. Some have taught that in Jesus, God only pretended to be a man, or God was only a puppet master of a man who played along or that Jesus, being a man, only was supremely obedient to God, and I confess to you the doctrine of the incarnation, that is, God becoming man, is a mysterious doctrine. But what Christianity, authentic Christianity, has affirmed for 2,000 years, and what you must affirm about the the nature of Jesus. He's gonna say later that we receive from the fullness of Jesus this grace. If you've got Jesus misunderstood, his grace will not be available to you. If your Jesus is not the Jesus, your salvation is not salvation. This is why, though they use the same terms we use, every system in the world that teaches works salvation or a false Christ is a a cultic and non-Christian system. That nice Mormon neighbor you have who can discuss the things of God with you till all hours of the night does not teach that Jesus Christ is as much God as God the Father is God. Ask them the question that way and watch heresy pop up. The Jehovah's Witnesses, the same thing. Oh, how they tap dance their way through John chapter one with their new world corruption, which they call the New World Translation. Jesus Christ was as much a human being as though he was not God at all body, soul, and spirit. Jesus Christ was as much God as though he was not a human being at all at the same time. And if that causes your head to stretch a little bit toward exploding, all in the world that means is God is bigger than you are. And you cannot utterly comprehend him shouldn't find that surprising. But he became flesh. Not only the miracle of his becoming, but the miracle of his dwelling. He became flesh and dwelt among us. He brought the intimacy of his presence into our lives. He is not the God of the the deist, is a remote God who wound up his universe like a machine and left it to run. The God of the theist is a demanding, engaged, but he doesn't love. The real God, the only God who actually exists, the God of the Bible, is one who came. We sing about it at Christmas. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. He dwelt and he revealed. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When I think about that combination of grace and truth, a turn of phrase we're gonna see again, just in verse 17, it, it pulls my mind to Ephesians 1, chapter 13. Ephesians 1, chapter 13, this is neither in your notes nor on the screen, but you can write it in your notes or you can make a note in your Bible. Ephesians 1:13. we talk about being full of grace and truth. Paul, addressing the believers in Ephesus says this. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, truth begets grace, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You came to him by grace, As you realized his truth, he became, he dwelt, he revealed. Roman numeral two, the messengers of his grace. Now remember, John the Apostle is writing this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Pastor Kerry did a great job last week making certain we we didn't get our our lines tangled up as we talk about John the Witness or John the Baptist in a book written by John the Apostle. Uh, We just have to make sure we understand we're talking about two different people. So we have the author, John, writing in verse 15 about his subject, John the Baptist. And we have in this example the messengers of grace, John and John. Verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. One of the central roles of an ambassador is to bear messages from his king. You and I are called ambassadors of Christ. These two, John and John, both demonstrate in the Gospel of John, characteristics of an effective messenger of grace, something you also are called to be. So as we who have received this grace, and so many of us have, convey this grace to others as messengers of our King, a role to which you have been assigned. Remember, in the Christian faith, there are only effective witnesses and ineffective witnesses. There are no non-witnesses. If you are a Christian, you are a witness. Jesus made it as a statement of fact in Acts chapter one, you shall be my witnesses. That isn't a command, it's a statement of fact. You're either an effective witness or an ineffective witness. Effective witnesses have some of the following characteristics. First, they're clearly capable. John the Baptist and John the Apostle both stand as as capable, gifted for and assigned to their role. Second, uniquely called. They understood what it is God had put them on the earth to do. They understood their place in service of the kingdom. You should as well. Growing Christian, you should become aware, you should be becoming aware of your gifts. One of the neat opportunities, um, one of the neat characteristics of an opportunity like Vacation Bible School is it's a chance, Miss Rita, for them to try something for a week. So if someone says, I think I want to serve as part of the decorating team, and by about an hour in, they realize, as me... That, that, yeah, I can staple something where I'm told to staple it, but nobody's ever gonna give me the assignment to make anything pretty. Make, give me the assignment to make something pretty, and you made a horrible mistake. But I know what I can do, and what I'm willing to do for my king, because I, I, am, I am called to it. Not only, and, and, and have exercised it, and, and had the body of Christ affirm it. These men were uniquely called. Let her see they were passionately engaged. Obviously, John, the author of the Gospel of John, is gonna go on, he's gonna, not only has he, by this time that he writes this book, he already walked with Jesus for three years. He's gonna put pen to paper to write this Gospel of John in order that unbelievers would come to faith. He's gonna write 1 John, which is the most uh, marvelously precise collection of, of, of diagnostic tests for an authentic faith. You ever doubt your salvation? Go through the book of First John slowly and carefully and at the end of it, you'll either know you're saved or know you need to be. The little encouraging books of 2 John and Third John and the marvelous panorama that is the revelation. John the Baptist, passionately engaged. Even in verse 15, John bore witness. John cried out. He was not timid, he was passionately engaged. Letter D, both men were profoundly humble. Profoundly humble. John, we've already said, the author of the book of John, never even mentions himself by name. He, he doesn't want to risk Shining one watt of the searchlight on himself. John the Baptist is going to make the statement in John chapter three, verse 30, that whatever else is going on, I've got to get smaller so that the emphasis on Jesus can get larger. By the way, that's true of me, and it's true of you I chase this rabbit for a second. I, I, I stumbled upon in a retail setting, a, a, a Christian, selling stuff to Christians, but what was for sale was a T-shirt that said, worthy. Thus, a, the T-shirt was a self-declaration of worthiness. Know your not. No, you're not. No, you're not. If I offer you 20 bucks to mow my front yard, and you mow my front yard successfully in that moment, you are worthy of 20 bucks. You've earned it. To be worthy of something is to receive what you have earned. You are worthy of eternity in hell. That is all and entirely what you are worthy of. Christ does not save worthy people. We're not worthy of his blood, we're not worthy of his love, we're not worthy, it's not grace if you're worthy of it. It's payment for what you deserve. The whole magnificence of grace is our lack of worthiness. If you've got a worthy t-shirt, bathe the dog with it one time so you get your money's worth and then throw it away. For heaven's sake, don't wear it in public. Or get somebody to make you a big sticker that says un and stick it in front of it and tell people about Jesus who saves the unworthy. Christians walking around thinking they're worthy of their salvation. No wonder we undervalue grace. You're not worthy. I'm not worthy. Worthy is the lamb. Worthy is Jesus. Brother Howard, that's bad for my self-esteem. No worse than the New Testament is. Let's, let's, let's throw some self-esteem overboard and pick up a bit more Jesus esteem, shall we? Profoundly humble. And because they were capable, called, engaged, and humble, they were useful to God. You want to be useful to God? I do, with everything I've got. Finally, letter three, the manifestation of that grace. Grace came For from his fullness, that is from all Jesus is, we have all received grace upon grace. The manifestation of his grace is in the reception of it. If you will turn from your sin, follow Jesus Christ by faith as Lord of your life, in that instant he will save you and you will be a recipient of his grace. So many of you have done that. Manifestation of his grace is seen in its reception and then it's the redemption that comes. The law was given through Moses. Moses was used of God to show us vividly how relentlessly demanding God is so that we would realize we can't satisfy him. Every now and then, in telling somebody about Jesus, I'll hear somebody say, well, I, you know, I try to live my life by the Ten Commandments, and I always say, and you're screwing it up, how's that going? How valuable do you think it is that you attempt to live your life by the Ten Commandments while you covet, lie, steal, dishonor your parents, have lustful thoughts about people you're not married to? Your trying to live by the Ten Commandments is crashing and burning, now what? That's what the law does. It forces us to look at the wreckage of our own good conduct. Good conduct. But grace and truth come through Jesus Christ, his redemption. Because, last verse, he has revealed God to us. Everything we need to know about God, we know because of Jesus. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's... But the the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. In conclusion, three things. First, grace humbles us. No perception of worthiness can survive a biblical view of the righteousness of God and the sinfulness of man. You're not. I'm not either. Second, grace convicts sung it most of your life. "'Twas grace that taught," what, my, go ahead, "'twas grace that taught my heart to fear." What an enigmatic statement. We don't think of grace as the means to fear. But as I have shared with you this morning in these last moments, Thousands of people have whizzed by, past me on Colonial Boulevard this morning, and most of them do not fear God. Their hearts have not been taught to fear because no one has gotten to them with the word of God so that grace can teach their heart to fear. Ah, but you remember the rest of the verse? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my Fear's relieved. See, grace relieves that fear after it teaches the heart to fear. It is grace that has taught us to fear God, and then it is grace that has taught us the means to stand welcome before him. Because, number three, grace saves. Grace saves. Oh, Thank you. Thank you, God, that we have a Jesus who has brought salvation home, has revealed the nature of the Father and delivered the grace of the Father by his death on the cross. The word became flesh and dwelt among us.